This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals. The information presented is for general educational purposes only and should not be used as professional medical advice or for the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions. The views and opinions expressed do not represent the views and opinions of our employer or any affiliated institution. Expressed opinions are based on scientific facts under certain conditions and subject to certain assumptions and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions or in any legal proceeding. Full terms and conditions can be found at portablebeads.com. And now onto the episode. Hey guys, welcome back to Portable Peds. Liz and I are so excited to work through this next immunodeficiency case with you, so let's get started. A previously healthy five-year-old male presents to the emergency room with three days of fever and decreased activity levels. On physical exam, there is cervical lymphadenopathy, evidence of pharyngitis with significant hyperemia, and hepatosplenomegaly is present. Initial lab work showed a leukopenia with a relative lymphopenia, thrombocytopenia, and a significant transaminitis. He was admitted for further workup and revealed an elevated LDH, a positive EBV, significant for acute infection, with a significant viral load. Throughout the following two weeks, he developed fulminant liver failure with significant coagulopathy and persistently increasing viremia and eventually passed away due to septicemia. Of the following, which diagnosis is most consistent with this presentation? A. Wiscott-Alger syndrome. B. X-linked lymphoproliferative syndrome. C. Chronic mucocutaneous candidiasis. D. DeGeorge syndrome or E, Zeta-associated protein 70 deficiency, also known as ZAP 70 deficiency. So take a few seconds, and we'll come back and go over the answer choices. So answer choice A was Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome. This is an X-linked recessive disorder that every pediatrician should be aware of. We can almost guarantee that this will come up on your practice questions or your actual exam. It is due to a defect in the WASP protein that codes for B and T cell signaling. Clinically, it will typically present with pyogenic and opportunistic infections, as well as associated eczema and thrombocytopenia. While this is not the correct diagnosis for this patient, remember this triad. You may see manifestations of bloody diarrhea, varicella zoster virus infection, herpivirus infection, or even recurrent otitis and sinusitis. Notably, these patients are at an increased risk of malignancy, especially with B-cell lymphoma and acute lymphocytic leukemia. Treatment is targeted at infection prevention with IVIG, antibiotics, and prophylactic acyclovir, as well as platelet transfusions if they are needed. What about answer choice B, Sammy? Yeah, so answer choice B is actually the correct answer, and it's an incredibly interesting syndrome to discuss. So it can be broken down into two types. So type 1 is due to a defect in the gene coding for the SH2 domain protein 1A, or shorthand is SH2D1A, and type 2 is due to a defect in the gene that codes for the X-linked inhibitor of apoptosis protein, or XIAP. Given that this is an X-linked disorder, it's only going to be present in males. So this patient's presentation is consistent with XLP syndrome, given that he had been asymptomatic until contracting EBV and then developed fulminant liver failure. If patients survive that acute illness, they are at increased risk for hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, or commonly known as HLH, B-cell lymphoma, aplastic anemia, or hypogammaglobulinemia. 
If it's caught before the EBV infection, you can actually use rituximab to prevent severe infection, and a stem cell transplant is actually curative. Diagnosis is made either with flow cytometry or genetic testing, which is the more definitive diagnostic test. And then answer choice C obviously is an incorrect answer choice, but do you want to walk us through why it is? Absolutely. So answer C was chronic mucocutaneous candidiasis. This disorder is exactly what it names states. This can either be by autosomal dominant inheritance pattern when the STAT1 gene is involved, or it can be autosomal recessive in nature when the AIRE gene is involved. In either case, the persistent or recurrent candidal infections is the major clinical takeaway. These babies and children represent with refractory thrush, diaper rashes, or onychomycosis. They have cutaneous energy to candida, and due to this, they cannot mount an immune response. The recessive form of this disease can also have an associated autoimmune polyendocrinopathy candidosis ectodermal dystrophy with associated hypoparathyroidism, adrenal insufficiency, and other endocrine disorders. Treatment is typically successful with a topical antifungal, but it may require systemic treatment if it is refractory. Now, what about answer choice D, Sammy? So answer choice D is DeGeorge syndrome. So while the patient does not exactly fit this diagnosis, DeGeorge syndrome is one of the most classic presentations that is crucial to recognize both for boards and in real life. So let's spend some time on it. Genes at chromosomal region 22Q11.2 or chromosome 10P13 are affected in this disorder. These babies will typically have a syndromic appearance with low set ears, micronathia or retronathia, hypertelorism, and potential for facial clefts as well. Congenital heart defects and developmental delay are intrinsically related to this disorder too. The hallmark of this disorder is a thymic and parathyroid hypoplasia or aplasia, which in turn leads to the quintessential immunodeficiency and hypoparathyroidism. So as you can imagine, the initial presentation of this disorder most notably includes hypocalcemic tetany and recurrent infections, as well as developmental delay. Interestingly enough, the degree of immunodeficiency can actually vary considerably, and T-cell function can improve spontaneously. So you can follow the immune function by trending their immunoglobulin levels, vaccine titers, and lymphocyte subset counts. Treatment choice depends on whether it's complete or partial DeGeorge syndrome, and if it is complete, it will require thymic or um, hematopoietic stem cell transplant. An incomplete actually only requires supplementation with calcium and vitamin D. So pretty variable appearance here, but really not the patient presentation that we see in our case. So that leaves us with our last answer choice, answer choice E, which I actually never heard of before looking up this question. Um, so I thought it was really important to include this. Um, do you want to walk us through answer choice E? Sure. So let's wrap things up with zeta-associated protein 70 or ZAP70 deficiency. Just like Sammy, I also hadn't heard about this, so let's spend a little bit of time learning more. This disorder is marked by impaired T-cell activation due to a signaling defect. The manifestations end up looking similar to skid, but these patients typically have a more mild clinical course and are diagnosed later. They also live longer. While it can be diagnosed as early as the neonatal period using the T-cell receptor exclusion circle or TREC test, you should think about this in older kids who have recurrent infections as well. A CBC will show lymphopenia and lymphocyte subsets where real CD4 counts that are low, normal, or high, but CD8 cells are absent. The CD4 cells that are present are impaired as they do not produce cytotoxic T cells. Overall, this case presentation does not fit this diagnosis, but it's an excellent one to keep in the back of your mind. So I think that wraps it up for this week. So go ahead and send us an email to let us know about any topics you'd like us to cover, or leave us some comments and suggestions on our Twitter page. We'll see you guys next week. Bye guys. Have a good week. 